Well, good morning, everyone. It is absolutely fabulous to be here this morning. Um, I guess there's fewer here because people are doing their taxes. Is the only thing I can imagine. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 20, um, and I want to get right into this because we have a lot of fun to have this morning with this passage at something at the expense of uh, Pastor Peter, I mean the Apostle Peter, and uh, they're similar, very similar, very similar, and they're... Is he here this morning? Is he st- okay, okay. Just wanted to be sure. Just wanted to be sure. So Matthew chapter 20, I'm going to pick up from the, the fabulous job our brother Andy did last week. Um, we're going to be going backwards so that we can go forwards. But let's, uh, let's read the scripture. I, I actually put it in your notes this morning if you'd like that. I may just interrupt what I'm reading because I'm afraid I won't be able to get back to some of the things. Just some little nuances that Jesus puts into this passage. So let's read together and then we will pray. Matthew 20 beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, and he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, He did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Catch this nuance. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. The first, last. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom that speaks into our hearts of our hearts, but most importantly, of your heart. And we pray, Lord, as we together look into your word, you will allow us by your Spirit's power to pull from your word, you. We need nothing more than you. We ask for your blessing that we may experience you. In this hour, we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, this is a parable with several views. Um, questions that arise from this. Do, do all receive the same reward in heaven? This is not a parable about that. 
Is this about Jews and Gentiles? The Jews being the first, the Gentiles being the last. I mean, you could maybe pull from that, but that would not be the context I was seeking from this parable that Jesus gives. Is this socialism versus capitalism? Let's just share the wealth, right? And so much, who cares how much you work? Everyone should get the same. That actually was taught from an Episcopal pulpit not many years ago. And maybe others. Maybe God is a union-busting right-to-work God. Nobody's going to tell him how much he has to pay. So unions, beware of the gospel. Or maybe this passage is, a, this is the life's verse. These are the life's verses or the proof text for the stereotypical millennial that says, all I should have to work is an hour and I get paid the same as everybody else that works 12 hours. <laughs> and so let's take it from that perspective. No, we're not going to do that. So let's set the scene. And I, I, I love the, the convenience of chapters and verses. But chapters and verses can create a challenge. That convenience can create a challenge because what do typically you and I do? We will read a chapter of scripture. We will stop and maybe a day or two days or three days later, we'll start in the next chapter and having completely forgotten what we read beforehand. You ever done that? Of course you have. Of course I have. And I lose the context. And we lose the context when we jump into chapter 20 and forget what we read before, what Andy taught us last week. And I don't have time to go into the, to the fullness of it, but this passage starts, the context of this passage starts at least in verse 14 of chapter 19. I promise you we're not going to retract that. But the tight context of this section of scripture begins when Peter incites a riot. Now, just so you don't know, a riot is a, really a, a deep uh, theological term uh, that I've learned since studying for uh, becoming an elder, a pastor. Uh, I, I, the, only, the reason I know that, because every time I would be before the ordination committee, they would say, you know, Frank, your teaching is really a riot. Uh, <laughs> And so I figured out what they meant by that was a representative illustration of topic. You didn't know that, did you? I wouldn't have known that either if not studying for all this elder stuff. But it's a, it's a, parallel, a parable. And so let's start, go just jump back quickly into Matthew chapter 19. We'll pick it up when the rich young ruler's face has fallen. He needs a facelift, as Peter would say. Um, and... We hear it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible for man to be saved. But it's not with God. And then Peter, verse 27, Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. I don't think Peter was anything but a bit indignant at that moment because he's trying to figure this, how does this work? We have left everything and followed you. Then what will there be for us? Hmm. This is Peter's wah wah, is what it is. Uh, and, and he's not done, by the way, with wah wahs. Um, When we get to John, if we study the Gospel of John, we'll see in John chapter 21, verse 20, when the Lord tells John the way, he said, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and you just had all kind of independence, but there's coming a day when you're going to be brought where you don't want to go. And the scripture said, by that means he was talking about the, the death that Peter would die. And Peter doesn't quite much like that. And he says, and he points to the Apostle John, and he says, well, what about that guy? And the Lord says, what is that to you? And so Peter's got a vision problem. And we're going to find out that we have a vision problem. Well, this is not unusual. The Lord, this won't be the first time the Lord has heard this thought. We've left everything. What, what's in it for us? If you, if you want to turn just to Mark chapter 4 very quickly. 
And I will say very quickly today, or as, as, as Mark would say in the, his gospel, and immediately, and immediately, immediately, let's turn to Mark chapter 4. And, and you will notice as well in your notes today, they are a reasonable facsimile of what I'm going to attempt to share. Similar to the Alpha course, if you're familiar with Alpha, pay no attention to the manual in front of you. Um, Mark 4, starting in verse uh, 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go to the other side. Now, when Jesus says, let us go to the other side, what does that mean? We're going to the other side. Leaving the multitude, they took him along with them. They took him along with them, just as he was in the boat, and the other boats were with him. There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Could you got this picture? The rain is pouring. The wind is blowing. The boat is filling. And fear is filling the boat faster than water. These men who knew these waters were being overcome by these waters. And he himself, verse 38, was in the stern. He's in the back of the boat. I learned that stern is the back of the boat. It's not what your teacher was. Sleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, catch this, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused... And I don't even think that was from sleep, necessarily. He rebuked the wind and, to the, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. More to be taught there, but I'll not do that. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid, so fearful? How is that that you have no faith? So, back to Matthew. So, we see here, Peter says... We have left everything. What then will there be for us? In other words, we've trusted you, Jesus. We came out here because we trust you. What is there for us in what you're teaching? We go to Mark chapter 4. Do you not care that we are perishing? At that moment, how much restraint do you think Jesus Christ had to have? Uh, Excuse me, I could hear Peter. This is what I would say. If I were Jesus, this is what I would say. So be very grateful that I am not Jesus. Excuse me? Uh, Excuse me, Peter... You left everything? Uh, You want to know if I care? Pardon me? Uh, And when Jesus, of course, let's just go a couple of years forward, and when Jesus is betrayed into the hands of the Romans, what do all of those disciples do? Did, did Jesus at that moment go, wait, 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 wait. Don't you care? Where, where are you going? I have left everything. I believe this sets the tone for this parable. This picture that we get of a landowner with initiative who has a job to do And regardless of the cost, he does it. Now, I have a couple of fill-in-the-blanks here because I love fill-in-the-blanks because I'm doodling during Peter's messages all the time, so I might as well doodle into something there. So, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a, what he does not say, he does not say it's like a vineyard. He does not say it's like the workers in the vineyard. He does not say it's like the grapes of the harvest that come out of the vineyard. He doesn't say that. And it's important that we get this. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a home, a master of a house. It's like a vineyard owner. This 
parable is about a God who works for the purpose of receiving to himself. It's not about the workers, though there are workers in the story. It's not about a harvest, though there is a harvest. It's not about the money they receive, though there is money that is received. This whole parable is laid over a master of a house. The picture, the point, is the master. John 5 tells us, but Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. John 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to work. His work was seeking. His work was saving those who were outside the vineyard. Those who were not workers in his vineyard. And I love this. The master of the house, John 14, 2, 3. Jesus says, I go, or I, he could say, I will go and prepare a place for you. He says, in my father's house are many... Now, I don't understand the translation that tells me in my father's house are many rooms. Um, I, I kind of get this condo feeling, don't you? Or... You know, fraternity dorm, sorority dorm. I, I, that is not the translation that I find throughout here. Um, I'm not a big King James fan, but I can be a King James fan here because it says, in my father's house are many, you've heard it if you've been around for a while, what? Mansions, abodes. The New, New American Standard translates it dwelling places. Okay. I go, I go and prepare a place for you. If I have worked in the vineyard, if I've brought people into the vineyard, brought those whom I choose, I will go. And my work here prepares a place for you in heaven for eternity. What I do now, the work I accomplish now, those whom I bring into my vineyard now will accomplish an eternal place, a dwelling place for you. It's his work. Now let's look at, we, as we look at this story that Jesus has brought to the disciples, I would argue maybe particularly Peter, his offer, deal one, a denarius. For those who are up early in the morning, ready to go to work, a denarius. And a denarius is a day's wage. It is a fair day's wage. It's what it cost. It's a day's wage for that which it cost to live for a day. To not work in that day would be to not eat the next day. And it was the law within Judaism that you don't get paid at the end of the week. You don't get paid at the end of the month. You get paid at the end of the day. So no pay that day no eat the next day. It was a hand-to-mouth society. And so the deal was for a denarius. And look at what the scripture says. It tells us that some went out after the first hour of the day. And then the third hour, then the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour. So first hour is what? 6 a.m., the beginning of the day for the Jew, 6 a.m., the third hour is nine. You guys who are adept in math now, you're getting this. The sixth hour is 12 o'clock, noon, also known as noon. The ninth hour would be, this is getting a little more challenging here, three o'clock, the most challenging yet. The eleventh hour is five. And the workday ends at six. Thank you very much. And so we have some going out the first hour. We have some going out an hour before the end of the day. Do you get this picture? Now, the question, I guess, is are these, are these latter-day workers, not latter-day saints, but are these latter-day workers... The picture of ready, willing, and able workers. My answer is, I'm not quite sure. Maybe some are, but more than likely, probably not. 
The description of the latter workers, I have two blanks for you there to fill in. It's in the scripture. Their description would be they are standing idle. They're standing around. Idle. Now that word in the Greek, that word idle is the word argos. Which means inactive. Unemployed. Lazy. Useless. Barren. Slow can mean any of those. So you could have had people there that were inactive, unemployed, lazy, useless, barren, or slow. You could have all of the above there. And they came, come out from the ninth hour of the day, pardon me, from the sixth, third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour and the eleventh hour. And the promise for them is I will give you Whatever is right. I will give you whatever is right. And apparently they trust this master of the house, this vineyard owner, this landowner, to the degree that they will actually go into the vineyard not knowing fully what they will receive. But grateful that there is something they can work for. This is the God whom we serve. This God gives what is right. He gives what is just. The word right there is the same as the word just. It's the same as the word from the word righteous or justice in the Greek. Genesis 18 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? Do that which is just? Of course he Shall. Deuteronomy 32.4. This is fabulous. I love this scripture. The rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God can never be. And it's important that we understand this in the sense of this parable. He can never be anything but right. In what he does. He can never be anything but just in what he does. There is never a time that he will not interact with you and with me based on his righteous and justice and just determination. If you are thinking anything, Frank, if you are thinking anything but that, we have a wrong consideration and understanding who of who this God is. It is impossible with man to be saved, and it is impossible with God to be anything but just and righteous. That is the God whom Jesus is describing in this parable. So the question, was the vineyard owner compensating? I, and I would encourage you, if you're following along in the notes here, if you're still trying to follow along in the notes, was the vineyard owner compensating or inviting, you could add that word in terms of compensating, inviting the workers based on his value of the amount of work accomplished? Or was the vineyard owner compensating or inviting based upon his value of the workers he was compensating? Remember, The parable is about the vineyard owner, the master of the house. You know, Jesus doesn't say one word about how large the harvest was and how many workers were actually needed. There's no statement of that. He doesn't say, you know, and after the sixth hour, I had to go out and find more workers. After the first hour, I had to go out and find more workers. It doesn't say that. It just says that he went out. It doesn't tell us the initiative of the landowner. Though the work needed to be done, and we don't minimize the fact that work needed to be done to bring in a harvest, we don't get the understanding fully of why he kept going for more. But when it came to the end of the day, for the time to be paid, You could pull out John Steinbeck's book, The Grapes of Wrath. Because what was about to happen was going to leave a very sour taste in the mouths of those who worked in the first hour 
of the day. Now, look, I don't know about you, but if I'd have been that landowner, this is how I would have handled it. I grab the guys that worked at the beginning of the day. I give them their pay, and I thank them for their day's work, and I send them on. Go do what you need to do. And then, secretly, that's what I'd do. I'd pay the rest of them, telling them. It's almost like hush money. I'm, I'm just, you don't, nobody needs to know that I paid you the same thing that I paid everybody else. Which would have totally destroyed the parable. <laughs> but, what, but what wrong had the vineyard owner committed? What injustice? Well, no crime, no injustice, but the crime of excessive generosity. The crime of refusing fairness. Thank God that he is not a fair God. Philip Yancey Yancey wrote in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he wrote, Their discontentment, those who worked at the first hour, arose from the, I love this term he uses, scandalous mathematics of grace. They would not accept that their employer had the right to do what he wanted with his money when it meant paying scoundrels 12 times what they deserved. Do you understand the 12 times what they deserved? If one hour gets a denarius, then 12 hours should get, those of you who didn't go to LSU, 12 denarius. Makes sense. (laughs) significantly many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons the add-ons the replacement players at the end of the day we like, that's us we like to think of ourselves as responsible workers now I could not help but as I read this paragraph from from Yancey I couldn't help but think of the thought monitor so those of you familiar with with, uh, week three of Alpha um, it's not just the doing that God looks at he looks at the thinking about what we're thinking about when we're doing what we're doing he looks not at just the actions that are taking place he looks at the attitude behind the actions right you know, the, the scripture in Hebrews 4.12 says, this, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it is able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In other words, the, the word of God helps us, by the power of the spirit, discern not only what are you thinking, but why are you thinking what you are thinking? And so even in the midst of a day with a, a person that's come out, me, let's say, comes out early in the morning and I'm working or early in my Christian life and I am working, well, I could be working till Jesus comes back, but every work I'm doing could be laden with wood, hay, and stubble because my attitude in the midst of my working could really more be about me And the approbation, Peter taught me that word too, the approbation I'm receiving in that. How are you thinking of me? How are you thinking of me right now? Please, please, at the end of this, when I'm done, please tell me how much you loved what I shared. Because if you don't, I will think I wasted all these hours. See, even our... our, even in the name of Jesus, I might as well be praying in the name of Frank. Let these things. I, I can be doing that. You and I can be doing that. I know none of you would do that. But, so we like to think of ourselves as responsible workers. We're back in the middle of that quote. And the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. Imagine hearing that parable for the first time. What are you talking about? Paying somebody the same for working one hour is 12 hours. Nobody does that. 
It's insane. We risk, here we go, we risk missing the story's point. Here's the point. That the master of the house, the vineyard land owner, the God dispenses gifts, not wages. If, we have, if we're honest, we're going to have a hard time with that. Maybe not as we're sitting here in a classroom with one another. But you get into your office and you find out that Joni's making 50 cents more an hour than you and you've been there two more years than she. You see, you've been passed by on the choir because this new little girl in the church has got a better voice than you. God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us, none of us gets paid according to merit. For none of us come close to satisfying God's requirement of a perfect or for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we'd all end up in hell. But do we live like we believe that? That is the nagging question in my heart in this parable. Because what do we see here? We see throughout the scriptures a prodigal king who forgives a servant $2,250,000,000 in today's wages. We see a prodigal shepherd who risks leaving 99 sheep to go find one. I don't know about you, but I'm worried about what's going on with the 99 while I'm looking for the one. Am I going to take that chance? This prodigal shepherd takes that chance because he's excessive and extravagant in his love for that one sheep gone astray. A prodigal father in Luke 15. A prodigal father who, who gives it all and forgives it all. And then celebrates the return of a wayward son. This God is prodigal. He is excessive. If you've been to an Alpha weekend, when we talk about the prodigal story of the prodigal son, we talk about the story of the prodigal father because the word prodigal simply means excessive. It can be excessively good and it can be excessively bad. We can see it can be excessively generous, it can be excessively stingy. But to whom is this, Linda, I did this for you, prodigality extended? To whom is this prodigality extended? Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now, let me stop you and just look at this. He's not just talking about what we do here. He is talking about who we are outside of Christ. That's what Isaiah says. We have all become like one person. We've all become like Mike Batto. Okay? We've all become like Christopher Spencer, like Patrice Fry, like Frank Loria. We have all become like one who is unclean. And the best you and I can put out is a polluted garment, also known as a filthy rag, and we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our iniquities sweep us away from anything, having anything to do with that which is clean and that which is holy. We have no place in this vineyard. Whether first hour or eleventh hour. But Paul tells us through the Spirit in Ephesians 2, this is not so with God. Because God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were unclean our works as filthy garments even when we were dead in our transgressions our trespasses he 
made us alive with Christ. And let me say this, he made us as alive as Christ. And by his grace, saved us. What can this evoke from us but gratitude? What can this evoke from us but an, a massive awareness of the grandeur of this landowner, this master of the house, so that this very love to which we have been loved, this extravagance which has been poured out upon us, all that we would have would be that extravagance to be poured out on one another. Three questions to those who labored longest. Do you not, did you not agree to work for a denarius? Didn't we have an agreement? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with that which belongs to me? Real quickly, because I'm on page five of seven pages of notes, and I have five minutes. But since it's the business meeting today, and Keith's going to speak less time than usual, I think maybe we should go a little bit longer. Um, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with that which belongs to me? I guess you you and I could ask the question right now, well, what does belong to you? What does belong to you, master of the house, landowner? Or maybe we could ask the question, who does belong to you, master of the house, vineyard owner? And then the third question, do you begrudge my generosity? Everybody's got that translation, right? Well, here's, here's, what the, here's what the literal translation says. Or is your eye evil because I am good? It's, it's interesting. I, I don't have much time to go into this, but there was such a thing back in those days called the evil eye. You get the evil eye. Okay, today we have a, have a derivation of that called the stink eye. Right? And why don't you just take a second right now and just turn to one another and give, Kevin, give Don the stink eye. I'd just love to see that with that. Uh, but the evil eye was like a curse. It wasn't just, I'm ticked with you for a second, I'll get over it. The evil eye was a curse that they would put on somebody. I mean, this, thing, this, this thought of an evil eye has been around for over 5,000 years, and, and people w- would wear these what are called talisman, like these eyeballs, literally eyeballs, that they would put around their neck or a brooch or whatever to ward off somebody's evil eye. And Jesus wants to know, are you, are you wanting to put a curse now on me because I am generous? Are you that indignant with me doing that which I know in my wisdom is what I want to do and what I do is always right and always just? And how do you say for a moment, I do not have the right to pay this for one who's worked only one hour When you have worked the same hours. Because you do not see and you do not value as I see and as I value. The workers put their eyes where they didn't belong. And their attitude of superiority over those workers who came later. How much attention were they paying to the others coming in later than they? Possibly not much. Until the end of the day, and everybody lined up. And at the end of the day, when everybody lined up, they're singing, oh, happy day. Until they see that those who worked but an hour compared to their 12 hours or 9 hours, suddenly, from joy, a dirge. Because it's just not fair. Jesus, we've left everything. What's in it for me? Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? 
Here's the heart of the follower of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Think about this in terms of any of us who've ever been envious. Who've ever begrudged the generosity of God on the life of another. Because remember, if anybody's ever received anything, it's not because of them, but it's because of God who gives to whom he wills for his purposes and for his glory. 1 Corinthians 13. We can use 1 Corinthians 13 outside of a wedding service. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not at all like any of these workers who worked at the beginning of the day and judged those who came in the tail end and just got in by the skin of their teeth. I had a grandfather, 90-year-old grandfather, who, who lived most of his life, 90 years of his life, as an unbeliever. Two days before he died, the Lord set up the circumstances for me to where I could be with him and talk to him about a great family reunion. And Italian patriarchs love to talk about family reunions. And maybe Irish patriarchs, I, I, don't, I don't know, it doesn't matter, it's not as important. Uh, but that morning, on a Thursday morning, when God sent me to his hospital room, and he was going to be getting out of the hospital, God had him confess Jesus Christ with me. Later on that day, that night, so it was the first hour of the day I went to him, the last hour of the day, this is interesting, my uncle went to him and said to him, as he, see, he, sent, he sensed this peace about my grandfather that he'd never sensed before. And, and he said to him, in my uncle's way of saying something, he said, you're not going to go and die on me, are you, beaver, damn it? You're not going to do that, are you? And my grandfather, who would have never have said this, I think it was the words of the Holy Spirit, said, why not? And two days later, he was gone. Annette's father, 87 years old, lived 87 years of his life as, if you knew him, he was quite a man. <laughs> quite a man. Three, day, three weeks before he passed from this earth, he Confessed Christ as his Lord and Savior. He made it in, barely. But he made it in. Now are we begrudging that? What if Anna were to look at Mary Magdalene and go, I've been here my whole life. I was waiting in this temple. I didn't get remarried. And you're going to let this Mary Magdalene prostitute in? Are you kidding me? She's going to get the same thing I'm getting? What about Simeon with the thief on the cross? How are you doing with that? You and I carry about in our pocket a begrudging eye. And the only reason you and I carry about a begrudging eye is because we have our eyes looking in the wrong place. Travis Collins said, uh, it's easy to forget how generous he is with us when we are envious of how generous he's been with someone else. But God has called us to a heart of thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. Find yourself in that place where you are really envious Tempted to be. Jealous, covetous, tempted to be. Looking at things on the horizontal as opposed to looking to the one who has given us exceeding abundantly more than we could ask for, ever imagine, or ever deserve. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. The thing that we need to see is before there was the first in the vineyard, he was the first Who owned the vineyard. He had to work. He had to humble himself. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things whether visible and invisible. Thrones. Dominions. All were created through him 
and for him, and he is before all things. All things hold together because of him. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent, might have first place. He who was God thought it, be, thought it not criminal to not be counted as equal as God. He was first among the first. Without his firstness, we are filled with nothingness. We have no vineyard in which to work. We have no place to be called. And before there was the last, he made himself the last. For he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled. He who was first, first, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so even that we who would come at the 11th hour with two days left in our life, with three weeks left in our lives. Those who came that may have been as miserable, as depressed, as angry, as sinful, as vile, came in in the last moment, would be able to receive an eternal heaven as would all others who had come in in the first hour. Because this one who was first, he became last. The one who created all things, subjected himself to all things, and he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we hated him for it. We believed that he was cursed by God because of it. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. And upon him, my chastisement took place so that I could have a peace I did not deserve. And it is by his wounds that I have acceptance into a vineyard that I do not deserve. Without Jesus, there is no promised land. Without Jesus, there is no harvest field in which to work. But here's why. In Christ... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this first one allows us to be those who come after him. I'll close with this. This God who is first and last, the God of this extravagance, leaves the 99 sheep to find one, welcomes a prodigal who comes home after squandering wealth and reputation, instructs forgiveness to be extended at least 77 times in one day, reserves his standing ovation for a widow who contributes but two mites into the offering. The God of this extravagance embraces the unclean leper, the homeless blind, the helpless lame, the hated outcast, the ruthless thief, and the heartless cheat. The God of this extravagance, the God of this extravagance seeks those drowning in lust and drowning in liquor. He seeks out the child abuser, the self-serving politician. And this God of extravagance crushes his son so that those who hate him experience not only his forgiveness but his total acceptance and sonship. But the most astoundingly and scandalously extravagance of all is that this God welcomes the likes of you and the likes of me into his home. His home. And the God of this extravagance thought not one bit of humiliation to himself of calling the likes of you and me. He left everything to give we who deserve nothing but hell everything. How can we give any less? For he who has been forgiven much, and we have all been forgiven much, loves much, and to whom much is given, much is Required, 
But even that which is required has been given to us already. For what do you and I have that we were not given? But this parable is not attempting to argue the issues of rewards, but of acceptance and position. Acceptance of God's grace for us and acceptance of God's grace to all others. For even the rewards we receive, and there are five types mentioned in Scripture for the believer, these rewards will not be worn in heaven as badges of honor. These rewards are crowns that John tells us will be cast at the feet of Jesus. Cast at the feet of the only one to whom all glory is due. The one who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, he who is the first and the last. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you show us through your word the extravagance of your love, the extravagance of your grace, the extravagance of your mercy. I pray, God, for us this morning that you would open our eyes to this limitless extravagance. Open our hearts to this limitless extravagance so that this very limitless extravagance that we have received, this limitless extravagance is Christ himself, would be poured out to all we come in contact with whether they came in in the first hour, the sixth hour, the third hour, or even the eleventh hour. May we welcome them as you welcomed us. May we love them and honor them as you love and honor us. May there be no division among us. And may we strive for the unity, God that you have established in us. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.